It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. And of course, the man of the hour. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Look forward to the show. You'll see some outstanding evidence-based commentary on the struggle in Palestine. As of this recording, the bombing of Gaza continues, and we will continue to cover it. Uh, first, we will welcome Craig Mokhyber, a specialist in international human rights law who has served as director in the New York office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, an office from which he has recently resigned in the wake of the bombing of Gaza, calling it, quote, a textbook case of genocide, unquote. We'll do a deep dive into the reasons behind his resignation, which include his accusation that, quote, the United States, the United Kingdom, and much of Europe are actively arming the assault, providing economic and intelligence support, and giving political and diplomatic cover for Israel's atrocities, unquote. In the second half of the program, we welcome back Code Pink's Medea Benjamin. She and members of Code Pink attended a Senate briefing about the Gaza conflict on Capitol Hill the other day. And while Secretary of State Antony Blinken was speaking, she stood up directly behind him, holding a sign that said, no more money for Israel, while her fellow protesters held up hands covered in red ink to indicate blood. She was promptly removed from the room by Capitol Hill police and arrested. Here's an excerpt of that scene. Not in the face of an intensifying strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. We'll get Medea Benjamin's firsthand account of her arrest and the work Code Pink is doing to promote peace in the area. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our relentless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's find out why the United Nations Director of the New York Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights resigned his post. David? Craig Mokhyber is a human rights lawyer. Since 1992, he has served in the U.N., most recently as director in the New York Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. He has also served as a UN Senior Human Rights Advisor in Palestine, Afghanistan, and Darfur. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Craig Mokhyber. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Craig, you're a lawyer. You've worked in the area of international law and human rights and under the High Commissioner of Human Rights of the United Nations. In the statement that you released on the occasion of your retirement after many years of work in these areas, you said, quote, I have worked in these halls through the genocides against the Tutsis, Bosnian Muslims, the Yazidi, and the Rohingya. In each case, when the dust settled on the horrors that have been perpetrated against defenseless civilian populations, it became painfully clear that we have failed in our duty to meet the imperatives of prevention of mass atrocities of protection of the vulnerable, and of accountability for perpetrators. 
And so has it been with the successive waves of murder and persecution against the Palestinians throughout the entire life of the United Nations. Ending it by your comment, High Commissioner, we are failing again, end quote. Let's list the violations of international law in the current war in Gaza by the Israelis. Ralph, it is a catalog that spans the entire Universal Declaration of Human Rights and a whole range of war crimes that are codified in the Geneva Conventions. I pointed out in my letter that in Gaza, civilian homes, schools, churches, mosques, medical institutions are being wantonly attacked. Thousands of civilians are being massacred. And this Orwell in the West Bank, including occupied Jerusalem, homes are seized and reassigned based entirely on ethnicity. There are violent settler pogroms carried out accompanied by Israeli military units. And I said, across the land, apartheid rules. Uh, this finding of apartheid, you may know, is a finding of every major international human rights organization, as well as the leading Israeli human rights organizations, not to mention a number of UN independent human rights mechanisms. And so the catalog of human rights abuses and violations is enormous. And, you know, you started out about mentioning international law, and that was really at the center of my letter was a sense that in the United Nations, international law had been subverted or pushed aside in favor of a, an approach to political expediency that, first of all, ignored the norms and standards of human rights and of humanitarian law, and secondly, has failed miserably to improve the situation in Palestine and Israel. And so I was appealing to a return to the prioritization of international law in the way the international community addresses the situation in the Middle East. And that means rolling back a lot of the losses that were taken during the so-called Oslo period. The Oslo Agreement put politics above law. It framed this two-state solution, which, as I have pointed out in the halls of the UN, is pretty much universally assumed to be impossible, in addition to being a proposal that does not deal with the fundamental human rights of the Palestinian people, and appealed here for an approach that is a normative approach based on UN norms and standards, international law, and the concept of equality by all of the people of the region. That is to say that we adopt an approach that requires equality between Muslims, Christians, Jews, and others in all of the land. Let's talk about the line between self-defense and violation of international law. In a prior program, we cited the famous statement candid by David Ben-Gurion, the acknowledged founder and first prime minister of Israel, when he told Nahum Goldman, then the head of the World Zionist Organization, in effect, it was their land and we stole it. They were in no mood after the Nazi Holocaust to recognize indigenous rights of the people there for millenniums. And then there's the statement in the New York Times quoted by a very well-regarded reporter, Roger Cohen, just a few days ago, where he quoted Prime Minister Netanyahu telling his own Likud party in 2019, quote, those who want to thwart the possibility of a Palestinian state should support the strengthening of Hamas and the transfer of money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy. End quote. So obviously there's a lot of murky politics going on behind the scenes, unreported. Like how did Hamas get all these weapons, international trafficking in weapons? They had to go through 
Egypt or Israel. There's a lot that's unknown, but the members of Congress are constantly saying Israel has the right to defend itself. So how would you argue as a lawyer in the International Criminal Court in Europe, how would you argue on the issue of self-defense, that the Israelis are basically saying, under the UN Charter, you can engage in self-defense? Well, I think you know, you're right to go all the way back to Ben-Gurion. I mean, there's this uh, historic irony that's being commemorated this year that it was 75 years ago in 1948 that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in the same year that the Nakba was perpetrated against the Palestinians, effectively erasing Palestine from the map. And by the way, the same year that apartheid was adopted in South Africa. And if you look at the approach of the international community in South Africa versus the approach that it has taken, at least since Oslo in Palestine, you'll see that it was steadfast in its defense of international human rights and international law in South Africa until apartheid fell. It abandoned that approach 30 plus years ago in Palestine in favor of this murky, as you say, to borrow your adjective, political approach. And the result is that the situation in Palestine has gotten worse and worse and worse with every successive year. You're also right to say that it's unclear where Hamas gets its weapon, but what is clear is where Israel gets its weapons. And the answer to that is from the US taxpayer. Israel is the largest recipient of aid, most of that military aid to the tune of billions of dollars, three to six billion dollars a year. And that's important from a legal perspective because the U.S. is also bound by international humanitarian law, not just to respect the terms of the Geneva Conventions, but to ensure respect vis-a-vis other parties over which it has influence. In this case, obviously, Israel. And what we've seen instead of the U.S. working to ensure respect for humanitarian law in the current series of events is that the U.S. has been, in fact, providing the weapons, providing intelligence, providing diplomatic cover, blocking any action in the Security Council by use of the U.S. veto. So actually operating in a way that is complicit in violations of international humanitarian law. That makes the U.S. a co-belligerent under international law. What is the significance of that? legal status. Well, that's one of the points that I also raised in my letter to the High Commissioner, because there has been this tendency in the international community to deal with the United States government as a mediator or as part of the solution, when in fact the U.S. has been effectively a co-belligerent, at least a party to the conflict for many, many years, not just in armaments, but in other sorts of support that allow this to go forward, while also supporting impunity for the violations as they occur as well documented as they are. So Israel cannot claim self-defense to justify acts that are prohibited by international law, international humanitarian law, international human rights law, international criminal law. And that's precisely what it has been doing. And its right to claim self-defense in the occupied territories is also limited by international law. That occupation is illegal. And what Israel has in Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, what it has is obligations under international law. This claim of a right to self-defense, every time you see a large-scale atrocity, a failure to respect the principle of distinction, disproportionate attacks, collective punishment, arbitrary arrests and detention and torture and summary executions, these are not excused by simply invoking the concept of self-defense. 
So again, this is why I've been saying it's so important to get back to the law and to abandon the murky and distorted approach of political expediency that has dominated the international community's approach to, to this conflict for far too many years. Well, the Israeli many years blockade of Gaza, which is suffocating the people in Gaza in terms of what is prohibited in terms of humanitarian goods and services to that enclave, is what led Senator Bernie Sanders, among many others, to call Gaza an open-air prison. That blockade is illegal under international law? It is illegal. It is, first of all, an act of collective punishment. It is essentially the interning of a civilian population of 2.3 million people. And remember that these people are mostly refugees who were purged from their lands inside of what is now Israel. The majority of them are children, and the majority of them are living in poverty and food insecure. And Gaza is entirely encircled. It is literally a prison, not just encircled, but also blocked from the sea and from the air as well. Israel has in its occupation of Gaza, and you know, there's a there's often a mistaken belief out there that somehow the occupation ended when Israel redeployed its troops around the perimeter. That occupation did not end. Israel is still the occupying power of all of Gaza, and it uses its control of Gaza to intentionally deny the population of Gaza, the requirements of dignified living and of their economic and social rights, of their freedom of movement, and then routinely, periodically attacks with high-grade military weapons, civilians living in Gaza, like shooting fish in a barrel. And that's what we're seeing again now. Remember that the people in Gaza have no escape. Israel's claims that, well, we warn them that we're going to destroy whole portions of Gaza and we ask 1.1 million people to move that kind of movement in Gaza was difficult in the best of years inside Gaza because it's a densely populated region with very poor infrastructure, a very young population, as I said, plenty of disabled people who have suffered from wounds from Israeli snipers and from previous Israeli attacks. But now whole areas of Gaza have been reduced to rubble, making it physically impossible for large numbers of people to move even within the cage that is the Gaza Strip. And in many cases, when some are able to move, they're simply attacked in other areas of the Gaza Strip, all the way to the southernmost portion of Khan Yunis in the Gaza Strip. So these are all also catalogs of gross violations of human rights, violations of the laws of war, and of the prohibition on collective punishment as well. So here's where there seems to be no precedent. These people in Gaza deprived of the life-sustaining food, medicine, water, electricity, and fuel, if they wanted to surrender, they couldn't surrender. If they stood outside with white flags, they don't even have a right to surrender. When we were on the cusp of defeating Japan and Germany, we kept saying to them, we want unconditional surrender. The fact that the Israelis are not demanding unconditional surrender of Hamas reveals what is now appearing in the Israeli press like Haaretz. Another agenda, which is the wholesale removal of 2.3 million people from Gaza into the Sinai Desert. And there are extreme right-wing politicians in charge of the Israeli government and military now who want to do that. When is the UN going to flag that? Because that seems to be what's coming 
and it may be coming very rapidly. Tell us about this second Nakba, that is, the removal of these refugees having arrived in Gaza after the 1948 expulsion from their homes. you think that is an exaggeration, or do you think they want to solve this problem once and for all? I don't think it's an exaggeration at all. I think it's the only logical endgame to what we see unfolding there on the ground. And, you know, you're right to point to the first Nakba and to look at the way history has evolved since 1948. That was an initial purging of Palestinians from the interior of what was to become Israel in 850,000 Palestinians, the, the majority of the residents, that interior portion, driven into the occupied territories, into the surrounding countries, into exile. And there has been a continuous purge of Palestinians from the West Bank year after year with the seizing of homes and land and orchards, the building and expansion of settlements in which Palestinians are not allowed. This is an entirely ethnic or racially based system that has left the Palestinians with less and less options on the land with the very clear purpose of creating an ethno-nationalist state that extends beyond the current borders of Israel and into the occupied territories as well. We've been seeing that happen apace in the West Bank, and now I think what we're seeing is an expedited version of that in the Gaza Strip, the total destruction of Gaza, forcing people who are still in Gaza to live in conditions that cannot sustain life or to leave through the Rafah crossing into Egypt, if Egypt will allow the ethnic cleansing to take place, and then presumably to allow these people to live in the Sinai Desert until they no longer exist. This is very clearly an ethnic cleansing campaign, and it is a continuation of similar campaigns that have been happening since 1948. And that's why, Ralph, in my letter, I have appealed for an escape from this very failed paradigm of the past several years and to one that is focused on equality, one that is focused on a democratic, secular state with equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and a number of provisions to restore the human rights of the Palestinians that have been taken from them, including ending apartheid, which now functions across the land in Israel and in the occupied territories, ending the colonization, granting the right to return without racial discrimination for Palestinians and compensation for their losses, a transitional justice process to identify victims and perpetrators and remedies, and the deployment of an international protection force to protect vulnerable civilians in the entire land. That is, I think to many ears, sounds just like standard UN fare, but it has all been denied to the Palestinians, even as it is asserted as a set of universal principles to be applied in other complex situations. Well, of course, Congress has absolutely no empathy, with very few exceptions, for anything affecting the plight of the Palestinians. And they're showing it now in the hearings to push through a $14.5 billion tax subsidy to the prosperous Israeli country and it looks like it's going to go through one way or another pretty quickly. So I want to ask you this question. With all the marches and demonstrations all over the United States now, and there seems to be a decoupling between rising public opinion, including among Jewish Americans and also the leadership of groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and the Congress. It hasn't changed a single vote in the Congress, a single doubt. There aren't going to even be hearings 
where a whole range of witnesses would be permitted to testify in the House and Senate before this $14.5 billion is sent. It's being called the genocide tax on the American people, who I think if they were polled would say, let Israel pay for its own blunders on October 7th. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an extremely good point. I mean, if there has been a glimmer of hope in this otherwise very dark moment in history, it has been the reaction of ordinary Americans in the streets. I mean, I'm in New York City, and I was deeply moved by what happened a couple of days ago in Grand Central Station with the takeover of the entire station by thousands of Jewish protesters standing up and saying that they support Palestinian human rights, they demand a ceasefire, and that what Israel is doing, it is not doing in their name. And so it has been with Muslim and Christian protesters, human rights defenders, peace activists, and ordinary folks who are participating in marches all around the country and, frankly, all around the Western world, demanding an end to this madness and an end to the complicity in all of this. I think American citizens have a particular responsibility here. You rightly point out that Israel is a wealthy state. It is a state with one of the most powerful militaries in the world. It is a state that has universal health care. And yet here in the U.S., where American citizens don't have universal health care or guaranteed education or some of the most fundamental human rights promised by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, U.S. tax dollars are being sent to support this powerful military in this rich state to carry out war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. People are waking up to that. Of course, you're right. There's an a remarkable disconnect, not just on this issue, but so many between the positions of the American public on the one hand and the positions taken in Congress and in the State Department on the other hand. And here is where we have to look very carefully at the issue of political capture by influential PACs and lobby groups like APAC and so many others that are working to make sure that the norms and standards that the U.S. public believes in are not in any way going to interfere with the endless flow of U.S. tax payer dollars to Israel to carry on its campaigns and to continue to act with impunity in violation of international law. But if there's hope, Ralph, it absolutely is the ordinary people that are standing up to make their voices heard. And I think that's only going to grow. And I do feel a shift happening here. Except on Capitol Hill, as Medea will be pointing out very shortly, here's how extreme the insensitivity of members of Congress. There are 600 Americans desperately trying to get through the Rafah crossing out of Gaza. Joe Biden went to Israel and hugged Prime Minister Netanyahu. He came back empty-handed. He didn't even achieve the release of 600 American citizens who are trapped in Gaza. The UN has been bombarded by the Israelis in Gaza. UN schools, UN relief agencies clearly marked on their roof as UN installations. 60 UN staff have been killed. Why isn't the United Nations making a bigger deal out of their own installations and people being bombarded and destroyed in Gaza? For the UN, you know, my letter was a complaint about what I thought was an inadequate reaction to this unfolding genocide in Gaza by the United Nations, by my own organization up until yesterday. But I'm very careful to point out that my frustration is with the political side of the House. It's with the Security Council, the political offices, senior political figures in the United Nations who tend to treat powerful Western states with kid gloves in ways that they don't 
treat just armed groups or smaller or weaker countries. And in this case, in addition to Israel, you've got the United States and the United Kingdom backing up Israeli impunity. And what I view is some trepidation from the political side of the House to hold them accountable in the way that they would other perpetrators of crimes or others who are complicit in those crimes. So, you know, the, the other side of the UN are those humanitarian workers and human rights monitors and UNRWA who are literally on the front lines and dying in their dozens doing their job in the occupied territories. They're absolutely heroic in my view. But I think that what we need to do is to shake up the political establishment at the UN that has lost its way since Oslo and has deferred to powerful states and to this failed paradigm in place of international law, international human rights, and the rule of law itself in international affairs. And there is no rule of law if the UN is only confident to hold smaller, weaker states to account, but not to stand up to the United States and, and other powerful states. Well, I think the next few weeks are going to show a vast undercount of Palestinian deaths, injuries, and devastation. You can't drop 12,000 bombs on a densely populated area and only have a fatality count of 8,500, which come from hospitals and morgues, but they're dying everywhere now from disease, the elderly, the infirm, lack of medical treatment, dehydration, having to drink poisoned water, contaminated water, and on and on. I don't think Congress is going to change. So before we leave, any questions from Steve, David, Hannah? I read the same Cohen article in the New York Times, and I've been reading in Foreign Affairs about Netanyahu uh, using Hamas as a wedge to divide the Palestinian people. But is Hamas a creature of Benjamin Netanyahu, or is it a legitimate force, a duly elected force in Gaza? Does it represent Gaza? And what is Hamas? And is it a problem? Well, Hamas is a conservative religious movement that sprung up on its own right in the Gaza Strip in the 1980s. But as you say, it was propped up and supported by a number of Israeli politicians who saw it as a useful counterbalance to the secular PLO leadership in order to create those sorts of divisions. I mean, that's all on the record now. You know, people who are living under foreign occupation have a right under international law to resist, including with armed force. The Palestinians, because they are occupied, they have that right under international law. Of course, armed groups are also bound by international humanitarian law, and they cannot target civilians, and they are bound by the Geneva Conventions, the Common Article 3, and the Optional Protocol. So simply dismissing Hamas, and as you say, Hamas was elected, although that was in Gaza, that was many years ago. There haven't been, hasn't been a possibility of, of subsequent elections, and Hamas is not just Hamas's armed wing. Hamas is also effectively a local government that provides services. Hamas is not supported by everyone in Gaza by any means. Palestinians who belong to many different parties, have many different perspectives from liberal to conservative. And so I think this continuous focus on Hamas and an effort to depict Hamas as ISIS with all sorts of fantastical stories is an intentional distraction away from the reality, which is the 2.3 million interned civilians in Gaza who have no say over what happens in their lives and who are on the receiving end of the Israeli bombs much more than any Hamas fighters 
are on the receiving end of those bombs. Well, so what is to be done with or about Hamas? Do you elevate them the same way Yasser Arafat was elevated to a statesman? Is that a possibility in Qatar? Do the leaders of Hamas have the capability of transforming into statespeople? Well, I think, you know, all national liberation groups and resistance fighters and so on go through a transition when there's an opportunity to do so. There's nothing that has changed. You know, most of these people have lived their entire life in the Gaza cage. They were born there. They grew up there. They never left. Many of the people who who broke through the fence in early October had never been on the other side of the fence in their entire life. They had never were those seen Hamas, their... war, Were those Hamas warriors? Some I mean, of them are Hamas warriors. And some of them... Army. I mean, we're being told it's 40,000 Hamas warriors inside the tunnels. Do we know if it's a standing army or is it, are they guerrilla fighters who blend in with the populace? Are they really using Palestinians as human shields? Is that true? Are they hiding beneath hospitals and orphanages and these are old israeli claims that are repeated in every single conflict as a justification for attacks on civilian infrastructure there is no evidence that you know hamas is quote hiding or using human shields we need a full investigation after the conflict has resolved itself but these claims have been made before and have been on many occasions disproven Gaza is a densely populated area. This is not a standing army as such. These are people who are living there. If you go inside Israel, you will see the same thing is true there. Military bases and headquarters and armed military personnel everywhere in civilian areas as well. And Gaza is even more concentrated than any parts of Israel. And so it's not like there are sort of, you know, areas for military and areas for civilians. But this justification that's used by Israel, where, for example, I mean, bombing a refugee camp with massive ordnance and without any respect for the principle of distinction, saying that yesterday that they were going after one Hamas fighter and destroyed most of the refugee camp in the process. This is a violation of the laws of war. It is disproportionate. It fails the principle of distinction. And it is it is clearly not justified. So, you know, if you want to ask what will stop armed resistance of an occupied people, the answer is the end of the occupation. I mean, we've learned this in all around the world. You know, colonized and occupied people will resist. That's the reality. A just solution, and here I'm saying it's time to start looking seriously at equality, equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews across the entire territory of Israel, Palestine. A just solution ends the basis of the conflict. Did, did Netanyahu and the settlers succeed in killing the two-state solution? I think most people who follow this situation closely know that there is a zero possibility anymore in practical terms of a two-state solution. There's nothing left of the land for a sustainable Palestinian state. There is zero political chance of Israel giving up significant portions of the land it is illegally conquered. And that solution never resolved the issue of human rights in the first place because it didn't address the second-class citizenship and persecution of Palestinians living inside the Green Line. So most people who follow this know this is the case. And yet in international affairs, at the UN, in the State Department and so on, they continue to repeat the mantra of the two-state solution, of deference to agreements between the party. By the way, agreements between the parties, one is the occupier, the other is the occupied. One is powerful, the other one is weak. So, you know, leaving it to the two of them means leaving it entirely to Israel. The so-called quartet at the United Nations, which affectionately hasn't 
functioned for many, many years and is a fig leaf in, in any event. Nobody really believes in these things anymore, but right. they repeat them over and over again as a smokescreen to continue the status quo. We're out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. We're out oh. of time. We've been talking with Craig Mulkyver, who until recently was director in the New York office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. He's a lawyer and specialist in international human rights law, policy, and methodology, serving the UN since 1992. Thank you very much for coming on the program, Craig. Thank you very much for having me, Ralph. We've been speaking with Craig Mokhyper. We will link to his work and his letter of resignation at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Coming up, Medea Benjamin gets arrested again. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyper. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, November 3, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. President Biden's Department of Justice is bending over backwards to protect corporate criminals. That's according to a new report from Public Citizen. The Biden Justice Department's light-touch approach to enforcement encourages corporations to push the limits of what's legally allowed to maximize their profits, risking our health and safety, our environment, our finances, and our communities, said Rick Claypool, author of the report. The Justice Department is still bending over backwards to protect corporate offenders from the consequences of their law-breaking, and it's creating ideal conditions for the next corporate catastrophe, Claypool says. The worst corporate-caused crises of the 21st century are stories about enforcement agencies failing to fight systemic criminal misconduct before it was too late. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David, Hannah, and the rest of the team. Once again, Medea Benjamin got arrested on Capitol Hill. Let's find out what that was all about. David? Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. Her most recent book, co-authored with Nicholas J.S. Davies, is War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Medea Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me on. Welcome indeed, Medea. And for people who don't know what Medea has been doing over these years, she's one of the leading advocates for peace. She goes all over the world, sometimes in harrowing circumstances, such as on the Afghan-Pakistan border. She is a, a leading protagonist of open, nonviolent civil disobedience, including congressional hearings that are stacked against any kind of diverse viewpoints by the chair of the committee. And she has on occasion stood up and said, you are not allowing us to testify. You're only hearing one viewpoint. This has occurred in the House and Senate before she and her supporters and collaborators are taken away by the Capitol Hill police. And just recently, the first briefing, I wouldn't even call it a hearing because there are no witnesses. The first briefing by the very large Senate Appropriations Committee on the $14.5 billion and other aid to Israel and even larger package to Ukraine were espoused by the two major witnesses, which were Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin. And you were there. I heard some of it on C-SPAN. Other than Senator Merkley and Senator Baldwin, it was almost a heel-clicking recitation of unbounded support for whatever the Israeli military 
wants to do and is doing in Gaza and elsewhere. What was the atmosphere like? Was the room full? What happened when you and others stood up? Give us an eyewitness account. It was a large room in the Appropriations Committee, and it was not full, which was surprising. You know, ever since COVID, there are not long lines like there used to be for these committee hearings. But you would think when there is such an important issue as the U.S. spending another $106 billion, that there would be people there who cared about these issues. Now, there were a couple of dozen of us who were there to speak out about the issue of Gaza, but I was surprised that it wasn't a packed hearing given how important it is and given how few of these hearings there are. And as you well know, Ralph, it's not really a hearing. The quote witnesses were just representatives from the US government giving a reporting, but it was an important time for the public to be able to in a room with those representatives and with the members of the Senate that many of us for weeks have been going into their offices, doing sit-ins in their offices, getting the local, joining in with the constituents in their districts, and trying to get them to come out for a ceasefire to no avail, to be able to be in a room with them and directing our opposition, not only to the White House, but to the senators themselves. Well, as you know, all these protests during the Iraq war run up, there were massive protests in the U.S., over 200,000 people in one demonstration in Washington, all over the world, didn't change any votes. The criminal war of aggression killed over a million Iraqis and blew apart the country to this day, suffering by Bush and Cheney continued unabated. The money flowed from Congress. What do you see as happening this time? There's rising demonstrations. They are led by a whole variety of people, Jews, Christians, Muslims. It's a remarkable collaboration of locking arms in favor of humanitarian aid and a ceasefire and a peaceful settlement over there. Is it going to be the same? Are any votes going to be changed? They're going to rush this bill through. They're not going to be any thorough hearings. And it's another $110 billion. And they added not only to Israel and Ukraine, they added it to Taiwan. I mean, this is like the ultimate empire bill with the $14 billion clearly susceptible to being labeled the genocide tax. Well, what do you yes. think? Anything going to change? It's incredible the level of insanity of giving more money to Israel that could create a regional war there, continuing to fund to the tune of $61 billion the war in Ukraine that could lead to a regional war there, and then tacking on some more money to provoke China. So what's interesting is the Senate wanting to keep all of this money together in one package. They call it one and done. Just get it all through before the election season goes into high gear because they know this is not popular with the American public. While in the House, the new speaker is being pushed to separate these into a bill just on the $14 billion for Israel, which will sail through with bipartisan support and then deal with the money for Ukraine separately. In any case, it is remarkable with all of these protests that are happening, not only the ones that we see sometimes on our mainstream 
networks, but also ones we don't see that are happening sit-ins in the offices of people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Jamie Raskin from Maryland, Rokana, Cory Booker's office, Jan Chikowsky, Chuck Schumer. These are happening all over the country. And yet the vast majority will vote for this money for Israel. And there are such horrific votes being cast by members of Congress already, like we saw the very first vote when Mike Johnson became speaker was House Resolution 771. That was a pathetic resolution calling to recognize Israel's right to self-defense, to mourn the Israelis killed, not a word about the Palestinians killed, condemn Hamas and reaffirm U.S. commitment to Israel. This passed the House by a vote of 412 to 10. And then there's other pieces of legislation like ones to condemn Rashida Tlaib, ones to suppress the right for free speech on campuses throughout this country, and to restrict humanitarian aid that would be going to the people of Gaza. So there is a vengeance, there is a an, an incredible disconnect on Capitol Hill between what the American people are calling for in the opinion polls that show 66% want a ceasefire, and this goes to 80% when it's the Democrats, and what the people who are supposed to represent us in the House and in the Senate are not only calling for, but going to be voting for as they let this package of billions of dollars of our tax money go to bomb more people in Gaza and to continue a proxy war with Russia. Well, history will judge these members of Congress harshly. They'll have the stain of genocide, the stain of importing suppressive pressures against free speech. And it's already being shown in Speaker Johnson's bill. He's not only put in a bill for $14.5 billion for the prosperous Israel, a technological, economic, and military superpower who can pay for its own blunders on October 7th, the colossal defense intelligence failure. But he has added, to pay for that, a $14.5 billion cut in the budget of the IRS. In other words, he's stripping the IRS further of the ability to combat tax evasion by the super-rich and the global corporations who get away with paying often 5%, 3%, sometimes no federal income taxes on huge profits. So they are in the process of supporting this Israeli military aggression and genocide in Gaza. He is aiding and abetting massive tax evasion in the United States. So this whole Israeli-Palestine issue over the years is ricocheting and boomeranging back on our domestic policy. And I'm sure you're feeling, Medea Benjamin, a kind of pressure on you. Not only do you get arrested for nonviolent, open civil disobedience on Capitol Hill, but there must be tremendous pressure now to increase the penalties when they take you away and your collaborators, much harsher penalties. And really all you're doing is standing up peacefully and pointing out that Congress is behaving like an autocracy. It is blockading itself from the American people. It is putting its own power up for sale. It is ignoring the facts abroad. It's alienating huge portions of the world. And they don't care. And they don't even want to hear. So they're stifling the First Amendment rights of the American people right in the crucible of Capitol Hill, where the First Amendment should reign supreme. Give us a sense of the kind of 
pressure on you all. And do you think you're going to be locked out of Congress pretty soon? I think that unfortunately, we're going to see some changes in the rules because right now, if you can get arrested in Congress in these hearings or in the offices three times and just get a fine for that. But after three times, the penalties become greater. So for people like myself, it is more complicated. But I think that things are going to get more difficult. For example, the doors of Congress are open right now, which is really something quite remarkable. People don't understand that they have access to their Congress people. If they come to Washington, D.C., they can walk in to their offices just like they can walk into public hearings. But right now, after these sit-ins in some of the offices, they are locking their office. Somebody like Jamie Raskin, who is such a defender of the Constitution and First Amendment rights, has now locked his office. You can only go in with an appointment. This is happening more and more with these congressional offices. So I think as they are hunkering down with the position they know is encountering so much opposition among the public, instead of changing their position, they are changing their access to the public. Somebody like Nancy Pelosi hasn't had a town hall meeting, I think in about 17 years. She does not talk to the public. And in fact, to be able to talk to her, our members of Code Pink in her district have had to do a camp out at her house on the weekends when she comes home and actually had to lie down in front of the car that was taking her away so that they could force her to have a conversation, which she barely had and accused us of being agents of the Chinese and Russian governments. So people like Nancy Pelosi never want to speak to their constituents because she comes from a very progressive district and holds values that are antithetical or or holds votes and positions that are antithetical to the district. Just like we saw a, quote, progressive senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who came in to be the all-American working guy and has physically had people pushed out of the room when they merely tried to talk to him about his positions. And I think we should recognize that the tremendous amount of money that the pro-Israel groups have thrown into our political process, divided groups like the Black Caucus, giving a lot of money to people like Congressman Meeks, to Hakeem Jeffries, and going after the progressive people in the Black Caucus, is something that is creating terrible divisions within our government, within the progressive caucus itself, where it was a threat of doing a sit-in in Pramila Jayapal's office, I think that managed to get her to sign on Cory Bush's resolution for a ceasefire that only 18 members of Congress have signed onto when there's about 100 members of the Progressive Caucus. So it is an absolute mess what is going on in Congress right now. And I think the the pressure is going to get greater and greater as each day goes by and people see more of these families in Palestine, in Gaza, getting wiped out and get angrier and angrier. At some point, these members of Congress are going to have to face the public. Well, you're right. They don't want to have town meetings back home. They either cancel them or they have virtual town meetings where they control everything. Congressman Richard Neal from Western Massachusetts, pretty progressive area, he was the former chair of the House Ways and Means Committee until the Democrats blew the 2022 election against the worst Republican Party in history. He hasn't had a town meeting since 2017. 
in his own district, and he's been there for 34 years. So we're seeing a, a separation more and more from members of Congress, from the people back in their own district. Congress is becoming more and more of a cocoon, an autocratic cocoon violating the human rights of citizens who are trying to engage in the very legislators to whom they have delegated enormous power under the Constitution, which starts, we should never forget, with we, the people. What do you see in the next few days in Congress? They only work three days a week, and they've got a a deadline to refund the government on November 17th. What do you see in the next two, three weeks, and how this struggle in Palestine, Israel, and Ukraine is going to affect all this. You're right on top of it. I feel like the $14 billion is unfortunately going to get through, and it's going to make constituents even more angry. There's a big demonstration happening on Saturday in Washington, D.C., 2 p.m. Freedom Plaza. I think it will be enormous. And there are groups that will be going throughout the halls of Congress this week and next week and probably the, the week after that doing sit-ins in their offices. And we encourage people to do this locally in your congressional office and to organize with us nationally. Come to DC whenever you can. There are groups like Code Pink that will help you to do a sit-in in your office. You don't have to get arrested. When the police come and tell you to leave, you can leave. If you feel compelled to get arrested, we can help you through that as well. We have to use what rights we have left and what access we have left. And so I'm uh, very encouraged that more and more people are doing these actions in their congressional offices locally and nationally. And I think we'll see more and more of that as the time goes on. And then remember, while this is happening here in the United States, there are massive demonstrations and shifts happening throughout the world calling for a ceasefire, just as we saw that incredibly overwhelming vote at the United Nations where the world community calls for a ceasefire. So this pressure, as well as the possibility of this igniting a regional war in the Middle East, has to be weighing on some of the people in the administration and Congress. And we know that members of the staff inside Congress, 400 of them signed a letter anonymously because they're afraid for their jobs, objecting to the congressional position on this. And I have met with a number of people in the State Department who tell us how upset they are. And of course, one of them publicly resigned, but others of them saying they oppose what the government is doing. So there is building opposition. And I think ultimately, this will have to affect the position of the U.S. government, which is untenable, given all of the deaths that are going on and what is going to happen to these two million people who are stuck in Gaza in a living hell. Well, there's an unlikely alliance possibly emerging in Congress. Republican from Kentucky, Thomas Massey, an MIT grad, and Marjorie Taylor Greene have come out against the $14.5 billion genocide tax. I think Greene mentioned all the needs back in her district, which is pretty impoverished. And of course, all over the country, Congress doesn't have enough money to deal with child hunger. They're not using enough money for child care, for family paid leave. It's just amazing. The uh, indifference to the desperate needs of poor Americans here 
and they're shoveling another $14.5 billion to Israel, which has a greater social safety net in Israel than we have in the United States. They have universal health care, for example. So we've been talking with Medea Benjamin, leader in the peace movement in the United States, founder of Code Pink, and goes all over the world on behalf of the dispossessed and the marginalized and the embattled in the quest for the rule of law and humanitarian policies. Before we leave, Medea, I want to give Steve and David and Hannah a chance to interact with you, which they've been waiting for. Hi, Medea. Yesterday, I saw a movie called Born in Gaza. I don't know if you're familiar with it from an Italian-Argentinian reporter and filmmaker. And it's simply the story of about seven or eight children in Gaza from the ages of six to 10, I think. And it was done in 2014, right after a similar bombing called Operation Cast Lead. And it's incredibly affecting. There's no narration. It is just these kids telling their story. And it was incredibly eye-opening because you can believe in this in an intellectual level that, yes, it's bad what's going on there. But until you see the conditions and see the trauma that these children are undergoing, it doesn't really hit you. Can you recommend other resources in the media, films, television, anything that would our listeners could take a look at to get the other side of this equation? Well, we have a list of resources on our website, codepink.org. There's also a great list of resources on the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights. Jewish Voice for Peace has a great list of resources. There are really some wonderful things out there if people want to learn uh, the background of this, because as you well know, Steve, most of the American people don't hear about this until there is a shooting war going on. And they think, for example, that this conflict might have started on October 7th. So it is very important to give people the background. And I hope people will go to some of those websites that I mentioned to get some good historical background and some good documentaries like the one you mentioned. In closing, Hannah? On the Code Pink website, I've found some really helpful resources on the issue of the current situation in Palestine. You have how to combat false media narratives. You have a really intriguing resource on boycotting birthright and the issues with with birthright and free trips to Israel. Are there any resources or campaigns that Code Pink has on this issue that you'd like to highlight? Well, our campaign right now is the one that is joining in with groups all over the country calling for a ceasefire. That is the number one thing right now. It's hard to even think beyond this because we don't know where this is going. And our campaign is really one by one to push for members of Congress to sign on to the Cori Bush resolution. I mentioned there are only 18 who have signed on so far. There are people who used to be the head of the Progressive Caucus, like Raul Grijalva or Mark Pocan, that haven't signed on to this resolution. There is not one Jewish member of the Congress that has called for a ceasefire. And being someone from the Jewish community myself and being close to the groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, we are pushing Jamie Raskin, Jan Chikowsky, Sarah Jacobs, all of these people to come out for a ceasefire. So there's a lot of work to do on that level. And I would say, let's pull all our resources together right now in calling for a ceasefire. On that note, thank you. We've been talking with Medea Benjamin, longtime peace advocate. She's there where she's needed, on the ground, protesting 
for justice and peace all over the world, and most notably on Capitol Hill, such a institution bolstering the empire year after year and turning our own Congress against the people of this country. I'm sorry, there is a campaign I forgot to mention that I think is very important and growing right now, and that is focusing on the weapons industry that are making the weapons for Israel, one of the most important one being Elbit. And we have a campaign right now that we are calling people to join us in protesting at the factories of Elbit around this country, just like they're doing very successfully in places like the UK. So you can find that information on our website. Yes, let's go after the weapons manufacturers as well. And give the website again, slowly. Codepink.org. Codepink.org. Thank you very much, Medea. Thank you. I want to thank our guests again, Craig Mokhyber and Medea Benjamin. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, including Francesco DeSantis with his news items in case you haven't heard. A transcript of this program will post on our Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is the indefatigable Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, and coming fast, the next issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. Go to the website, get it, spread it, libraries, friends, coffee houses. It's your Capitol Hill citizen. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, David asked a question of Medea Benjamin. I saw that President Biden is framing the $106 billion supplemental as a jobs bill. How true is it? Is it a jobs bill? And... Have you ever seen anything so brazen before where U.S. president is talking about supplying weapons as a jobs bill back home? Has that ever been framed that way before? I think it's just disgusting the way it's framed as a jobs bill. But of course, the the giving of a trillion dollars to the Pentagon is framed as a job bill as well. And we hear that echoed in the hearing yesterday from the Republicans talking about this in terms of our arsenal of democracy and how this is creating good jobs around the country. You know, I find this just quite revolting when you think of the jobs that we need to address the climate crisis and all the good jobs in a green economy that we have to transition to. And yet talking about jobs, creating bombs that are killing civilians every day in terms of something being good for the U.S. economy is really mind boggling. But I think it does speak to the larger issue of how did we allow ourselves to get into the grips of this military industrial complex that has so much influence on our policies. And I, who walk the halls of Congress on a regular basis, are aware of the tremendous lobby that comes from this weapons industry. And let's recognize, you know, this is an industry that thrives and and really gets its profits from conflict and is portraying itself as creating good jobs. So let's not let 
Biden or any of the others frame it in this way and change the narrative of saying that we need to transform our economy to one where good jobs are not in creating weapons of destruction. Medea, before we get to Hannah, you were up there for quite some time at Senate Appropriations hearing where Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin were the main witnesses. Were there any senators who demonstrated anything other than a ditto head blanket support for the Biden policies toward Israel in the present firestorm in Gaza? Anybody show any kind of independent thinking or empathy or dissent? Well, I was taken out at the very beginning during the initial opening remarks of Blinken. But when I read the reports, and I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole hearing, it really focused on very much how are we going to get this money through? How are we going to deal with the problems in the house that wants to separate? Why are the issues of Ukraine and Israel so intertwined? There was questioning about why the U.S. government couldn't do more to get the American citizens out of Gaza, coming from senators who had constituents who were stuck in Gaza. But in terms of questioning the policy itself, no. And let's remember that Blinken poses this in a way that we are trying to help the Israelis protect the innocent civilians. And so the language is one of a kind of 1984 doublespeak. But I think we are not hearing from any of the members of the Senate. I mean, Bernie Sanders comes as close as you can, and he only goes for a humanitarian pause. And when you say humanitarian pause, it sounds like okay, let's stop the bombs for a little bit, get the aid in, and then start killing people again. What the people of Gaza really need is to stop the killing and to, of course, to get the aid in as well. But none of the senators are calling for a ceasefire. And now Ralph elaborates on the disconnect between our political class and the people. This disconnect between public opinion ranges over a lot of other areas. Most people in the country want to crack down on corporate crime. Congress does nothing. Most people want universal health care, paid family leave, child care. Congress does nothing. There are areas where there are 80% of the American people, conservative and liberal, want Congress to act, but it's in the grip of these giant corporations that prowl Capitol Hill. So the only approach is to challenge these incumbents in primaries and to summon them to town meetings back home where they can't exclude the people from voicing their concerns and aspirations and senses of justice the way they can at congressional committees, where more and more witnesses are being excluded. And these hearings are not hearings without witnesses. They're simply briefings between knee-jerk supporters of corporations, or in this case, Israel, and the administration. Finally, David, Hannah, and Steve read out loud some of your recent feedback. We've had a lot of really interesting conversations on the show the last few weeks about the difficult situation in Israel and Gaza, and the conversation hasn't stopped when the mics turned off. There have been really interesting comments on our Substack and on our YouTube channel, so we're going to read out some of those comments now to add them to the conversation. And just to be clear, we're not endorsing any particular comments. We just wanted to include some of our listeners in the discussion. We always say we read all of your feedback, and we mean it. 
Ralph has picked out some stand-up listener comments from recent episodes. David, Hannah, and I will read some of your feedback from the last few weeks, including our shows with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, Bruce Fine, and the special program we shared with our Substack paid subscribers. Hi, Ralph. Nader Radio Hour. I found the podcast, A Strategy of Annihilation, very compelling. What can members of the public do to pressure U.S. decision makers to end their support of Israel's crimes against the Palestinian people? Thank you, Connie and Jason Norris. Well, I think if you listen to this week's program, you'll have some idea about how to pressure the U.S. decision makers. If you listen to Medea Benjamin in particular. Yeah, at CodePink.org, they have petitions you can sign and they have info on how to inform yourself and inform the people around you. Thanks, Hannah. And from our Substack site, Maureen B. writes, My main concerns are the people being killed, starved, and dying in our name. However, I'm very concerned about the Israeli power over the United States and have been since Obama was president. I often feel like yelling, is anybody paying attention? Can anybody else see this? Does anybody else care? And referring to Ralph, she says, I'm so grateful for the work you do. Thanks again. Next one is from Tim, David. Tim enjoyed our interview with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, and he called it an incredible interview. He highlighted this quote from Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, where a Jewish leader in New York told him, quote, the greatest motivator to anti-Semitism in the world is Benjamin Netanyahu, unquote. He goes on to write, it confirmed a number of terrifying ideas I've not been able to get out of my head since the genocide has started. This next comment comes from Howie. He writes, wow, I can't believe that I missed Mr. Nader at the Tort Law Museum. If you're interested, Howie, side note, you can go to tortmuseum.org and the program you're referring to is available for free in its entirety. Howie continues, this program with Colonel Wilkerson and Bruce Fine was phenomenal. Despite studying the rules of war over a lifetime, I learned a lot during this program. I received an email from Veterans for Peace earlier today, Saturday, calling for people to come out and demonstrate for a ceasefire. Absolutely necessary, but this seems to be a replay of a tired tragedy. Are we a failed state or a generally failed species? I know if I attempt to organize a rally, the charges of self-hating Jew and anti-Semite will come, and they will come in large numbers. I have to consider this. As horrific as the war between Hamas and Israel is and violates every law of war regarding non-belligerence, there seems to be no learning about remaining humane within the walls of an insane asylum. Thank you for that, Howie. Howie, I know, is a regular listener and responder to us, so keep responding. This next one comes from uh, our Substack site also from Tom L., and Tom writes, good program, as well as Mr. Nader's Common Dreams articles. But how many weeks have elapsed since we saw the alarming rise of racist rhetoric against the Palestinians? Timeliness is essential, and I've contacted Senators Blumenthal and Murphy, quoting from the international laws and what Israel is doing, also contacted Congressman Himes. I got to tell you, Tom, Ralph would be very proud. This is what he uh, always says, the Congress, the Congress, the Congress. So I think that's what people need to do is let your Congress people know how you feel about it. Kathy Dittmer writes, I doubt Israel has any clue where the hostages are. They'll just say, oh, it was an accident. Oh, well. And Channel Math, this is from our YouTube channel, says, the colonel is slightly mistaken. Hamas has said they are willing to accept a two-state solution along the 67 borders, with right of return, of course. It's in their 2017 updated charter. 
I recommend also listening to our talk with Medea Benjamin about the two-state solution. This next comment comes from Christine Aragon. She writes, Biden lost my vote. He may get the Jewish vote, but he is in danger of losing Michigan. And I believe the young will just stay home. I'm saddened to my core over the suffering of people in Gaza. Lee Folks writes, I don't think Israel has a strategy, but yet Israeli people keep calling Palestinians animals and saying they need to go. They have a clear cut strategy and they are clearly pushing it forward. They are telling you what their strategy is, but people just can't imagine other human beings being that cruel these days. Well, it's not all Israel people calling Palestinian animals. It's just certain members of Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition. Correct. All right, this comment comes from Steve Shovelworth, and it's about the Zoom special we did for paid subscribers. And Steve writes, what a pleasure to see those whom I've been hearing on the radio for so long. This was a refreshing reminder of some of the many areas of public life that have been improved due, in the main, to the efforts of Ralph Nader, person from whom I voted more often than any other in my life. I'm often referred to him as the best president we never elected. Among all current candidates, as well as those running for president within the past 50 years, no one came close to Ralph's intelligence, integrity, and honesty. After the heartbreaking defeat of McGovern in 1972, the country has been circling the drain, regressing legally, economically, and socially with each succeeding administration. Your weekly show has been a constant source of interest and inspiration for me. I can't think of another show that has a consistently high level of intelligent people exchanging rational views in an honest and civilized manner. I've never suspected any agenda beyond that expressed by the topic under discussion. In the 21st century, this is rare. I most sincerely thank you, Ralph, for your lifetime of service to this country. Well, thank you for that, Steve. Appreciate it. This next comment is a bit of a misconnection from Mark Lax. Mark writes, by any chance, does Ralph know what happened to the 1962 Corvair I abandoned near the Union Turnpike exit of the Northern State Parkway on my way home from college during my sophomore year at Adelphi? It was dark green with blue seats and had a standard transmission. It tried to kill me, but failed. I need to believe that my dad wasn't trying to do it, at least not for that. The year must have been 1965. I had to read Unsafe at Any Speed to learn that Chevrolet was up to get me and that I didn't have to take it personally. (laughs) It's really, you know, it's great that Ralph could help Mark forgive his father of any suspicion. Yeah, this is a, this is really a heartwarming story of, of redemption. Yes. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. Here's another comment from our live Zoom special from Dini Grange. You're right. I love your show. It is so nice to see you all after listening every week. You give me hope, make me laugh, and make me want to kick ass. Thanks for showing up and making a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What are we waiting for, people? Stand up, stand up. We've been sitting way too long. Thank you, Camp Harris. Ian Hoffman writes, thank you for this special edition of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. It was especially nice to hear how the show came to be. I can't tell you how much this show means to me. I eagerly await new episodes each Sunday, and my partner sings along to Stand Up, Stand Up as soon as she hears. What was supposed to be seven months in New Zealand has now turned into nearly four years but you all help me stay informed on what's happening back home. We do our best to stay active from abroad, voting in all elections, 
As a member of the Congress Club, sadly, I can only report that my representative and senators haven't responded to any emails. Two have added me to their mailing lists, however. Were I still in Sacramento, I would be bringing the Congress Club legislative agenda directly to the elected representatives at their public forums or show up directly at their office, as we had to do on occasion when we weren't getting responses. All the best from Nelson, New Zealand, Ian Hoffman. Very sweet. Yes, thank you for that. Thank you for all of your feedback. We're going to try to make this a regular feature where we uh, select some feedback from our YouTube channel and from the Substack site. So feel free to respond and maybe your comment will get read out loud. If we pick your letter and read it out loud on the show, you get to send us a t-shirt. You send us a t-shirt. Yeah, you send yes. And we'll you punch your card. If you get a certain number of letters read on loud, there may be a free car wash in it for you. You get to wash our car. Yeah. You get a cut of our advertising profit. Yeah, you're right. You get a check and pay for the postage for a check for zero dollars. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. President Biden is facing a collapse in his 2024 polling related to his blind support for the Israeli military. A Gallup poll shows Biden's disapproval rating among young people has hit nearly 60 percent, rivaling the collapse in support for LBJ as the Vietnam War dragged on. According to the same poll, Biden has dropped 11 points with Democrats overall since September. Among Muslim Americans, Time reports only 17 percent say they now plan to vote for Biden in 2024, a steep decline from the 59 percent who voted for him in 2020. Many Democrats are sticking with Biden despite his deeply unpopular position on Gaza, but not Representative Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian and represents a significant Muslim American population in her Michigan district. In a recent video made with Means TV, Tlaib signals, quote, there is no excuse for Joe Biden's support of Israel's genocidal campaign in Palestine. Don't count on our vote in 2024. On Monday, October 23rd, the AFL-CIO held a tense meeting of its executive council regarding Gaza. The New York Times reports, quote, Mark Dimenstein, the president of the Postal Union, argued that Israel and Palestine should be combined into a single state and called for the AFL-CIO to demand a ceasefire, according to four people familiar with the contents of the meeting, end quote. He also described himself as, quote, an anti-Zionist Jew, end quote. Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, asserted, quote, Israel's right to defend itself and said she backed establishing an independent Palestinian state alongside Israel, end quote, noting, quote, that has been part of the democratic platform for as long as I can remember, end quote. Mr. Dimenstein responded that he is, quote, not part of the Democratic Party. The International Federation of Journalists, reports that the West Bank Shrine venerating Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akla, murdered by an Israeli sniper who was never brought to justice in May 2022, has been desecrated. IFJ General Secretary Anthony Bellinger said, quote, I visited this site myself and know firsthand how important it had become to those who mourn Shireen's loss. It is hard to see the destruction as anything other than a cruel act of vengeance of a kind that can only exacerbate tensions in Palestine. The sooner the ICC gives this case the attention it deserves, the better. Anti-war sentiment is even taking hold in Israel itself. 
Israeli journalist Oren Ziv reported on an Israeli anti-war protest on October 28th, highlighting that this was the first such demonstration and that the protesters blocked roads near the Ministry of Defense in Tel Aviv. This comes as the situation within Israel grows increasingly tense, with reports of Palestinian students being trapped in a dorm at Netanya, at Netanya Academic College as an Israeli mob outside chanted, quote, death to Arabs, end quote, per the Middle East Eye. Even the Pope has weighed in on the growing violence, joining calls for a ceasefire. The pontiff issued a statement reading, quote, let the arms cease. Stop, brothers and sisters. War is always a defeat. Always, always. In major domestic news, the United Auto Workers Union has triumphed in their strike against the big three automakers. On October 30th, UAW and General Motors reached a deal following similar agreements reached with Stellantis and Ford. Axios reports that details of these deals include, quote, 25% wage hikes over four and a half years, cost of living adjustments, bringing top wages over $42 an hour by 2028, and eliminating the despised two-tiered wage scale for new hires, and quote, all key demands of the striking workers. These deals also provide, quote, permanent jobs for temp workers and boost retirement income, including 401k contributions, end quote, and protections for EV workers. Reuters quotes UAW President Sean Fain saying, quote, we wholeheartedly believe our strike squeezed every last dime out of General Motors. They underestimated us. They underestimated you. In more UAW news, Bloomberg reports that workers at a Fremont, California Tesla plant have formed an official organizing committee with the UAW partially funding the effort. The Fremont factory employs close to 20,000 workers, with tens of thousands more at other Tesla facilities across the country. Elon Musk has historically been extremely hostile to unions, quote, using tactics such as threatening staff on social media, interrogating union supporters, and firing a worker due to their activism, according to rulings from the National Labor Relations Board, end quote. For its part, the union posted on social media, quote, when we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with a big three, but with a big five or big six, end quote referring not only to Tesla, but other non-union auto manufacturers like Honda and Toyota. The Washington Post is out with a blockbuster new report on how payday loan firms have gone to war with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. According to the report, quote, powerful financial firms that offer high-cost, short-term loans to poor Americans have blocked at least five federal investigations into their business practices since the start of last year part of a broad and aggressive campaign by payday lenders to neuter or eliminate their chief watchdog agency in Washington, end quote. These firms have fought the CFPB tooth and nail in the courts, successfully bringing a case to challenge the existence of the Bureau itself to the Supreme Court. As that case winds its way through the legal system, these firms have, quote, cited the pending Supreme Court decision to slow ongoing CFPB investigations or fight off the agency's recent punishments, end quote. Lisa Gilbert, the executive vice president of Public Citizen, which filed a briefing with the Supreme Court in defense of the CFPB, noted that, quote, the really big picture implication is all of the rules of the last 12 years could be called into question. Finally, The Intercept reports progressive House Democrat Jim McGovern and conservative House Republican Thomas Massey are circulating a letter calling on President Biden to end the judicial prosecution of WikiLeaks Julian Assange. This letter emphasizes that, quote, deep concerns about this case have been repeatedly expressed by international media outlets, human rights, and press freedom advocates, end quote. 
and noted a previous letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland, which stressed that, quote, every day that the prosecution of Julian Assange continues is another day that our own government needlessly undermines our own moral authority abroad and rolls back the freedom of the press under the First Amendment at home, end quote. Hopefully, this left-right coalition in favor of press freedom will prevail. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand.